I want to ask you, how many of you have received news that you felt unprepared for? That maybe you were puzzled by even. What does it really mean? Maybe you were deeply troubled by it and you struggled to even accept it. I have. Maybe your job was terminated. Maybe your spouse told you that the savings account you thought you had was empty. Maybe you heard that a friend had betrayed you. Perhaps it was a confidence that was very important. Maybe your parents came home and told you they were getting a divorce and they upended your life. Maybe it was less than that, but in your mind, it still upended your life because they came home and told you they were moving to another state and your life was going to be turned upside down. Well, we don't know really how to respond in those moments sometimes. So kind of we awkwardly start talking or boldly start talking and saying things. Then we begin to realize that maybe silence would have been the best policy after all. And we leave the conversation and after hearing what we think is bad news and all we're longing for is just a little empathy, a little understanding from someone. And what do we get? We get corrected. What is going on? That's where we find Jesus' disciples today. We're going to take a look in Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 24 through 28, at Jesus' words to them when they were right smack dab in the middle of that situation that I've just described. But before we do that, I want you to think about the scene from the disciples' perspective. It's a really stressful time. They've been following Jesus for three years now, and they signed up. They left everything, their jobs and occupations, and many times leaving their families for long periods of time, to follow him, to be one of his disciples. And they did that with the understanding that there was a future that included an earthly kingdom, the overthrow of the Roman government, and they would be part of Jesus' leadership team. They had it all planned. And he's just rocked their world. You see, for the first time ever, he told them plainly, explicitly, that he was going to go to Jerusalem that he was going to be mistreated by the Jewish leaders, that they were going to turn him over to be killed, and that he would raise three days later from the dead. Now, Peter, who's always good for an outburst, when he got the news spoken so plainly, he said, never, Lord. To which Jesus came right back at him and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, the interests of God, what God wants. You have in mind what you want. Wow. Peter's thinking, I didn't see this coming. This is not what we signed up for. What? How is this going to usher in your kingdom, Jesus? The self-talk in that crowd of disciples must have been going at warp speed about this time. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to us if that happens to him? If he's arrested, will we be arrested? And what's going to happen to our leader, our nearest and dearest friend of three years? And what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? 
if this is how it's all gonna play out. All of these thoughts and these emotions would have been colliding in their souls. Then Jesus says these words that I'm about to read. In Matthew 16, verse 24 through 28, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming with his kingdom. We've been talking about, this is the third week now, asking ourselves the question, are you a traitor? And the big trade, the biggest trade we could ever make in our whole life is what Jesus is talking about here. The exchange of my life and my will for his life and his will. And he says that we step into real eternal life when we surrender our life to him. Notice Jesus' words, who they are for. He says, anyone or whoever. This is an all-inclusive conversation. Jesus looked ahead to tonight, you and me, reading these words, and he's saying them to us too. He says, anyone or whoever would come after me. You see, he wants to be at the center of leading us in how we spend not just our time, not just our comfort, not just our money or our skills, but our hearts, our emotions, our thoughts. And he is inviting us to follow him that way. I want to take a look at a couple observations with you out of Jesus' words at this really amazing time in the disciples' life. The first observation is just this, that Jesus means, but that following Jesus means that we turn from what I want to what he wants, from selfishness to selflessness. He uses the term from our selfish ways. This idea of what it meant to be a disciple, because that's what he's describing here, it wasn't a big leap for these 12 disciples. This giving up what I want for what he wants. Because the disciples were really familiar with the rabbi relationship with the rabbi's disciples. That was a common thing in the Jewish experience. And anyone who had heard these words would have thought about what it meant to be a disciple of a rabbi. You see, the essential qualities, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, if you wanted to be his disciple, were submission and Secondly, would be that you would be a, have a desire to follow him. So it was always willing, and you had to ask permission to be a disciple, but you had to be fully submitted. It was a given that a disciple of a rabbi would try to imitate their life, that they'd become really familiar with God's word, that they'd be willing to wrestle with God's word and be asked a lot of questions about it, 
And they would have to live a transparent life along with a lot of other disciples in what was called the yeshiva while they were learning all of this together. But it also included a commitment. And the commitment was to give up any and all of their notions of what it looked like to live your life. They had to give up all their plans, all their ideas. It was focused, though, on behavior, not on heart stuff. The behavior that the rabbi deemed was best to honor God. And you had to totally conform and submit your life to what the rabbi's interpretation of the scripture was. Now, amazingly, as striking and as like radical as that seems to us, whoa, you know, handing my life over to somebody like that, Jesus was asking for more. You see, I mentioned that the rabbi's focus was on behavior, not on heart, but on the behavior. Jesus took this commitment even further in the words that he said, I don't just want your behavior submitted to me. To follow me, you've got to surrender everything, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, and your behavior. You've got to let me be the supreme authority in your life, inside out. Now, right about now, my independence, uh, blue light is going on, red light, you know, alert, alert, alert. You mean surrender everything. I don't know about you, but I grew up, surrender wasn't exactly a good word, you know, that white flag. Okay, if you're a soldier, surrender is not nice unless somebody's doing it to you. You don't want to do that to the other person because that's the enemy. You're giving in to the enemy. And surrender for some of us feels that way. It's scary. I knew in the home that I grew up in, I had an alcoholic dad. And because of that, there was one person in our family whose life was very out of control. So how could I deal with that? I was a survivor. I took control of my life. I made sure that I made decisions that were good. I was uber responsible. That's good, but when Jesus asked me to be his disciple, he's asking for a radical commitment where I give him my desires, and I start following his desires for me. And that can look a lot different. Now, some of us go, well, okay, the big moments, the big decisions in life, it's pretty clear. I, I'm going to let Jesus determine those. But that's not really what Jesus was referring to here. He was include, that was included. He was referring to the daily decisions that we make. Day after day, making this choice to follow him. The big moments in life. I've shared before that we had been pastoring for 11 years. We'd pastored a couple of churches. And the Lord told us to work with the denomination. And we were to pastor pastors. And we did that for 17 years. But when we first got word that that's what we were going to do, I loved pastoring at the local church. So I had a little fit with God. It looked a lot like my two-year-old granddaughter, Katie. And I was having my quiet time with him and just letting him know what I thought about all this. When I was reminded of these words of Jesus, that it's in the daily taking up my cross, laying down my selfish desires, and submitting to his desires for me. And I wrote these words, we will still our hearts before you, quiet our souls before your throne, laying all upon the altar, knowing we are not our own. You have bought us, you have bought us, great the price that you have paid. Owing all, I surrender, my surrender humbly made. 
Those are the big moments, though. And what I've discovered in my life, and maybe you have too, and I think the disciples discovered this, is that the big moments only work because of what I call the parking lot moments of our life. Those are the moments where Jesus is asking us to do it his way that we think nobody sees. It's the moments like when I came home from Uganda a couple weeks ago. And when I got home, I had a little bug. I didn't let it stop me, but my mom had had four gallbladder attacks while I was gone, and she needed to go to the surgeon the next morning. So we headed off to the surgeon the next morning, and the surgeon led to the cardiologist to make sure her heart was safe for surgery. And the cardiologist led to another half day of tests at the nuclear medicine facility. And then when those tests were done, there was a lab visit to be made. None of these were things that I planned on doing while I was trying to catch up from being away for two weeks and not feeling in top strength. That's a parking lot moment. Now, the first thing the Lord reminded me of was when I was in the eighth grade. And I got pneumonia, and I got very sick, and I was home for a week. And my mom cared for me. Took time off work as the school nurse to watch after me. So I knew it was none too noble. But he gave me perspective. This is what I want for you right now. It's like what happened with my daughter. She got invited Thanksgiving dinner. Their whole family did, and it's going to be in the evening on Thanksgiving Day. She thought, whoopee. But then she found out that her neighbor, Judy, who's all alone in her 60s, watches after their kids has become a good friend of theirs, that she was going to be alone for Thanksgiving. So she thought, I need to have Thanksgiving dinner here at 1 o'clock so I can include Judy, and we'll have Thanksgiving dinner, and then... We'll go to my friends in the evening and have a second Thanksgiving. And because that friend is a mutual friend of ours, she said, Mom, you got to promise me that you won't tell her that we've had Thanksgiving dinner once already. (laughs) Parking lot moments are like I walked upstairs yesterday morning and I needed to get the guest room ready because our daughter and her husband were coming. And Jared, who had traveled over 1,000 miles this week to teach and train and pastor pastors, who was a little bit tired, but I come upstairs and I was going to get the room ready, which is, you know, blow up, all those blow up mattresses. It was blowing up the queen size blow up mattress, setting up the pack and play, you know, making the bed, just all the different things you do to make sure that you're ready for guests. And I came up and most of it was done by him. Parking lot moments. It's like the life group that though they've been helping with the bags for the precariously housed students, And though they're probably going to be buying calendars tonight, and and though they're bringing food galore to help with the Christmas meals, they're putting together gifts to take to Dornbecker, the the Ronald McDonald House for families whose kids are seriously ill over the holidays. Those are the parking lot moments. That's what Jesus is really talking about. And it's in those little parking lot moments, whatever yours look like, that we begin to develop into a disciple, a fully devoted disciple. And that brings us to the second observation. Following Jesus means that we are going to live counter to our culture and to our natural self, our natural uh, human nature. Now, Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, hang on to your life and you'll lose it. Let go of your life and you'll save it. 
Okay, this is absolutely counterintuitive. It counters everything. Now, I was a lifeguard for 10 years, and I want to tell you, I've, I had to do several rescues, and nobody did I ever say to them, let go of the life buoy, and your life will be saved. Let go of the shepherd's crook. Oh, by the way, let go of my leg, and your, your life will be saved. No, that's where we get the term hanging on for dear life, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what we say. Hang on for dear life. And that is really ingrained in us, even when it comes to being a disciple. What? Let go of what I want? How could that really result in something amazing with God? Well, the word here for life is literally the word for life that we refer to every day, that we take care of every day, our soul and our body, the thing that we clothe, the thing that we feed. Jesus uses the same word for life in John three sixteen when he issues the promise, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but would have eternal life. That means your soul isn't over in this life. And in John Chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's your soul. That's your emotions. That's your physical body. It's laying it all on the line. That's what he's saying. It's the same word that Peter uses in John 13 when he tells Jesus, I will certainly lay down my life for you. But the elephant in the room when Jesus said these words to the disciples and the elephant in the room right now, as we talk about it, is that the values of the culture that we're a part of and our human nature, the selfish desires that we all carry, those are two big elephants in the room when we talk about living counter to our culture. You see, following Jesus was counter to the culture for the disciples too. Jesus and his disciples were living in a shame-based culture. You know what that looks like? It means that if somebody in a shame-based culture falls down, the first thing they think about isn't, am I hurt or anyone else? It's, did anybody see me? Because in a shame-based culture, what is the top value? Looking good. Looking good. And I can tell you right now that when he described a path that went toward a cross and carried a cross, that didn't look good to any of them. It didn't look honorable. You see, shame brings dishonor. Taking a humble path wasn't a first century value, and it wasn't a first century virtue, not only inside the church, but outside the church. Humility, is that whole idea of it was not looked up to. It was not something to aspire to. Rather, to be approved, to seek one's own honor. So it makes a lot of sense that the Pharisees were pretty into that. They loved the places of honor, Jesus said. All of the disciples would have known when Jesus said, take up your cross, what that meant. They would have known that a condemned person would often be forced to carry their own cross, at least part of their way to where it would be mounted or lifted up. And that carrying your own cross was not only a burden, but it was a sign of shame and a sign of death. They understood this part of what Jesus said really well. You want me to follow? You want to follow me? It's going to lead you on a path of selflessness, of humility. It might even take you to places that, from the culture's perspective, are shameful. 
Oh man, I don't know about you, but I can just hear the breaks going on in their heart about being a disciple and following Jesus further. You see, following Jesus, it's so fun when we're casting out demons and we're feeding hungry crowds and we're healing sick people. But now he's talking about me giving up my will for his, making him the supreme authority in my life. Wow. I don't know about that. Now, the amazing thing is that here at E, we have a lot of followers of Jesus Christ. We have a lot of disciples. They're traitors. They've made this great exchange. Greg and Patty Johnson, you're traitors. You see, the culture says that when you've finished, when you get your last child graduated from high school, as they did last year, what are you supposed to do? Mm, Start looking for leisure? You're supposed to start figuring out how you can go here, go there, just to have fun, live for pleasure. That's what you're supposed to do. But they didn't pick that path. No, they picked the path of Greg leading a prayer group on Tuesday mornings. They picked the path of laying their lives down with our students, of investing, trading their time in order to invest in some young people's lives by caring for them, by meeting with them in small groups. They have traded their time to be life group leaders, to help other people who are just behind them in life season. Greg and Patty are traders. Greg and Patty are disciples. You know, there's some other disciples here. We have Laura and Ron Kalash. And I don't know how many of you have met uh, Laura But Laura is an amazing lover of our kids. And she oversees the events for children's ministry. If you've been to day camp, if if you're coming to the parents' night out that's going to happen uh, the last weekend of the month, so many different events that she helps with. And she's also called our resident baby whisperer because of her impact on babies in the nursery. She's here multiple hours during the week. Now, here's the amazing thing. Ron, her husband, he also volunteers there. He's been known to be a crazy John the Baptist, any uh, number of other crazy characters for them, and he loves holding babies in the nursery. But you know that Ron and Laura have three kids of their own, and a couple of those kids have had a lot of special needs, both physical and learning because of their physical difficulties. They have not had an easy road, if you know their story. What would the culture say that Ron and Laura should do? You've got enough on your plate. You've got your three. You've put in your time. Just take care of that. But that's not what they've done because they're traitors. They're disciples of Jesus. Following Jesus is counter to the culture. And we have a lot of people here who do that. And following Jesus is also counter to our natural desires The disciples wanted to be significant. Now, they argued about who was the greatest regularly, and they had just demonstrated in their previous dialogue with Jesus that his planned path for them was not what they were dreaming of. And why was this? You know, Jesus shared these very same words with them in John, the 12th chapter. And he repeats these instructions, but this time he starts it with an object lesson. Now, how many of you got your... Okay, it's not wheat, it's oats, folks. 
Anybody with a half a farm in them knows this, okay? <clears throat> but I could not find any wheat seed. I even had Ray help me, and you know, five or six places later, we gave up. So you're going to have to imagine with me. Because Jesus starts this whole talk of losing your life to save it with a talk about a kernel of wheat. And he says, unless a, a seed, a kernel of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce. It will produce more seed. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it'll produce many more. Now, the fact is that a single kernel of wheat will produce 50 more kernels. In Jesus' day, it would have been scattering the wheat, so they just would have sprinkled it out like that, scattering it. And he uses this metaphor to illustrate the same principle that he's just shared with the disciples here, that anyone who tries to hang on, who takes their life and grips it tightly in their hand and tries to protect it and preserve it and save it for just the right time, whether it's your time, whether it's your comfort, whether it's your money, whether it's your thoughts, whether it's your emotions, anybody who tries to do that is going to lose it. But if you let go of it, like a seed that goes into the ground, it dies, and then it germinates and produces much, much more. And he used this to show these disciples who were always significance-oriented that impact, real impact, Real influence only happens when we let go of ourselves and follow Jesus in what he wants. So you know that this week, our focus is on the far piece of our trading, that we're looking at how can we uh, trade our time, our comfort, our money, and those kinds of things to help people far. And there's so many ways to do that, but one of the ways we're doing it this year is we're buying calendars for Cornerstone Ministries. And what's really cool this year about the calendars um, these were produced by a family here at Evergreen, and they are donating the cost of the production. So all of the proceeds, and it's $20 per calendar, are going to the orphanage um, there in Budaka. Now, this year's calendar also tells the story, tells the story of how the, each child came. It tells stories each month of how this whole thing has unfolded in the last almost three years now. But I want to tell you about the beginnings, because it has to do with this whole laying down your life and following our rabbi, Jesus. You see, Lori, when we came, was the executive pastor and children's pastor here. And as such, she had a pretty good handle on the admin of the church and on the finances. And the first thing that she told Jared and I was, I should be the first to go. She said, logically, she said, realistically, that makes sense. Right there, that's letting go. To suggest that you be the first one, that's letting go of your own life, your own comfort, your own security, a 50-year-old woman who's alone, single, taking care of herself, has a secure place. I should be the first to go. That makes sense. And then within just a couple weeks, the Lord spoke to her and talked to her about going to Uganda to start a church and an orphanage and a school and some businesses that would become part of the support system for this ministry. And that was another wild idea, another letting go. Because if you know Lori, she doesn't like snakes, and she doesn't like spiders, and she doesn't like using an outhouse every day, and she doesn't like to be hot. And Budaka's on the equator. 
You know, God didn't surprise her. She knew all these things about Ludaka when God spoke to her. But Lori's a disciple. So she said, that's what I'll do. Let me tell you about the other half of that partnership, Rogers, because you may not have known this. You see, Rogers was living in Kampala. And he was headmaster of a great school put on by Good Samaritan Ministries. And Kampala is a much more modern place to be than Budaka, let me assure you, though it's still far behind the state. And he was from Budaka, from the village of Kabuna. And he basically told God, like some of us have, I will never. Have you ever tried that with God? Yeah, that's a really dangerous thing to do. And his was, I don't ever want to go back there. He liked what he's doing, and he was doing good work, right? But God gave him a dream, a literal dream at night. And in the dream, he went back to reach his village of Kabuna and the region, the district that's called Budaka. Didn't do anything about it. He just kept that to himself. But he meets Lori through Lori's daughter, Abby. And Lori suggests that they go there and pray over the city. City being a misnomer there. The town, the village. And so they did. And that is how this ministry was born. It was just born of two disciples of Jesus Christ who surrendered their will to his will. They took their life and they let go of it. And now today, we've been showing you some pictures. This is a picture of all the kids, all 115, including the 30 orphans, who are in school. And we have uh, Kaylee's back there and Glenn Hinman, who are on the team. But you see the teachers and the headmaster, they're kind of pictured in there in the midst of them. But you know, there's 115 kids who every day are learning about Jesus, even as they go to school and get all of the information that the Ugandan government wants them to get. And there's 30 orphans that not only have a home, but have an education, have a future, have a place to be loved. There's a little boy, Matawaru, and he just went back to the surgeon. You see, he came with a compound fracture that had been untreated for two years. That's where the bone sticks out of the leg. And because of the goodness of a couple here who are paying for the surgeries. He had that repaired, and he's just getting ready to have another surgery that will allow his leg to continue to grow because right now he wears a lift in his shoe this big. A little boy that wouldn't have lived without that. There's eight teachers and a headmaster, Headmaster David, that have meaningful employment and are being discipled in their faith as they're a part of the church. Several of the teachers and Headmaster David are on the worship team. And uh, Headmaster David's the only keyboardist I've ever seen who can play the keyboard and still be dancing on his knees down there, uh, keeping the music going. And then there's the businesses that have been started in that two and a half years. And here's our own Pastor Emily um, with Auntie Monica, who is the uh, head of the bakery. And they're standing there. They, they bake together several days um, each week. And Monica and a whole bunch of other people have employment, meaningful employment. And they're all part of the church together. And there's 255 people who know Jesus. One of those, the first convert, I got to meet her, the first person to get saved in the new church. Her name's Helen. And Helen is still praying for her husband. 
who struggles to be a very nice man to her. But she's still following Jesus and has the joy of the Lord on her face. Because Lori and Rogers decided to be disciples of Jesus Christ. They decided to let go instead of hang on to what we'd think is ours. And there's 42 pastors in Icky Icky. They're here and they're, they're doing their soap together, their devotions together. There's another 72 in Budaka that we had never met together before, but now they have, and now they're meeting monthly since we left, learning how to study God's word and to share it with their people. And today, the little thing we're doing is asking ourselves, what can we save, sell, sacrifice, or earn so that we can give here, near, and far, whatever way God's leading you to? The third observation, just briefly, you won't be sorry that you traded your life for Jesus. That's how Jesus ends the conversation. You know, he's not heartless. I told you, you know, the disciples were scared. They were wondering what was going on and how could this be and how will your kingdom be ushered in if you go die on us? And they were just a, a, a really an upheaval of emotion and difficulties. And into that, Jesus says that I'm coming back with all my angels. And you know what? When I come back, I'm going to reward each one of you, according to what he's done. And this is taken straight out of Psalm 62, 12. The very same words. God will reward everyone according to what he's done. And Romans 2, 6 says the very same thing. It repeats this for us. Paul does. God sees everything. God knows everything. He sees your smallest sacrifice. He sees how you've bent your will to his. So the question that I'd invite you to consider tonight, what is Jesus asking you to let go of today so that you can experience real life, a life that's going to go on for eternity? And have you traded your life for his? The band's going to come out, and they're going to play a song, and I'm going to invite you to just think about those two questions. What is it that I'm willing to let go of? tonight the song they're going to sing is a new one it's called i surrender and it goes like this here i am down on my knees again surrendering all surrendering all find me here lord as you draw me near desperate for you desperate for you i surrender as they sing this and perhaps as you join in part way through i invite you to consider What do you need to let go of tonight? What's the trade he's asking you to make?